Once again, welcome. Good to see you this morning. Turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 8, as we're going to continue in our series, Rediscovering Jesus. And we're in Mark chapter 8, and we're going to be looking at Mark 8, 27 through the first verse of chapter 9. So go with me, if you would, to God's Word, and we'll um, look at this passage together this morning. I want to read it to us, and then um, we'll jump in. But let, before I do that, let me, let me pray. Lord, we do thank you for your Word, and uh, God, as I pray every week, Lord, you're your word is precious, and it is living, and it's active, and Lord, it's um, where we, we truly only find um, the only hope we have, and that hope is in Jesus. And so I pray this morning, would you open our eyes and open our ears to your word? Would you speak to us this morning? We desperately need to hear it from you, and uh, we are weary and um, burdened, and many of us have sin-sick conscience, consciences uh, uh, that we walked in with this morning, and I pray that, Lord, you would... Help us to give our burdens to you. Um, And instead, Father, we would receive uh, your light burden of love and grace this morning. Uh, So, Lord, be with us this morning. Be with me as I preach your word. I pray for your grace, Lord, as as we look at this passage together this morning. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, this is Mark chapter 8, 27 through 9-1. Hear God's word this morning. So Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of... Let's try that again. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do you say, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. Ray, can you cut me down just a little bit? I think I'm feeding back. Thank you. And they told them, John the Baptist, Elijah. Others say one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. And He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Well, we are in Mark chapter 8. And if you know, Mark has 16 chapters in it, right? And so it's not a coincidence that even though we're halfway through the Gospel of Mark, that we, are, we have reached the halfway point really in, in Mark's theme of this narrative of the, cru- of the life of Jesus. You know, if you uh, take a hinge that a door is hung on, right, that hinge folds back and forth, right? And there is a, a pin in that hinge, a linchpin in that hinge that allows that hinge to go like this, right, to fold in half. Well, that's where we are. Chapter 8 is kind of the linchpin, the hinge pin of the Gospel of Mark. And we reach this crucial question that we actually looked at when we began this series, where Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? And really, you need to personalize that. 
really the question Jesus would pose to you is, who do you say that I am? And Mark writes his gospel to help us begin to answer that question, not just intellectually, but to help our soul answer that question. So we've reached the crux, the hinge pin of Mark's gospel here. And in this passage this morning, this is a familiar passage probably to many of you, this passage this morning, Peter, the disciple, finally, after spending almost three years with Jesus, he finally has the aha, that's what I call them, the aha moments. You ever have those aha moments where you're like, aha, finally get it. Well, Peter has that aha moment where he finally recognizes that Jesus really is the Messiah, the one that, that everybody's been talking about, the one that he's heard about since he was a kid, this promised coming Messiah. Peter finally goes, aha, you really are the Messiah. Jesus is like, yeah, you've been with me for three years right? But he finally has this aha moment. And what does Peter say? Mark tells us that he says, you are the Christ. Now, when he says the Christ, Peter is using a word that literally means the anointed one. It, it means the Messiah. Now, Peter's not just saying, listen, you're a king, right? He's saying, no, you are the anointed one. The anointed one literally means the king who has come to end all future kings. The king who has come to end all kings. He is the king who has come to put everything right. And how does Jesus respond to this? He says, yes, Peter, right. You're correct. I am the king. I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one, the king to end all kings. But let me tweak here what you've said about me, right? And immediately in verse 31, he starts to turn things around and, and says things to Peter, says things to the disciples that were just shocking to them. He says, yes, you're right. I am king. I am king. As a matter of fact, I am king, but I'm not the king that you were expecting. And here is this crucial, pivotal point in this passage that tells us two things about Jesus here this morning. And by the way, I, I have gotten this, uh, much of this from Tim Keller in his book, um, King's Cross. His treatment of this passage is the best, and so many of his ideas are here this morning, and I just wanted to give uh, credit where credit is due. But Jesus says, here's two things here about myself. Two pivotal things that you need to see, Peter, that you need to see, disciples, that you need to sing, see wellspring. He says, first of all, I am a king, right, who has come to die. I am a king, right, but I have come to die. And then the second thing you need to know is that if you follow me, then you have to die too. You have to die as well. Well, that's where we're headed this morning, so we're going to look at these two incredibly important truths. Firstly, Jesus says, I am the king, I am the anointed one, the king to end all kings, but I have come to die. So he says in verse 31, look, he says, I am king, I am the Messiah, but I am not the king you were expecting. I have come to die. Now in verse 31 we read, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now the three words here, three phrases that we just read that are so important. In fact, they're, in fact, they're so important that we need to look at these words individually. So the first one is son of man, that phrase son of man. The second one is the word must. And the third word is the word suffer. Now, first of all, son of man. This was Jesus' favorite way of describing himself. Son of man. Whenever he described himself, if you read through the Gospels, uh, the times that Jesus described himself, he would use this term, son of man. And he's, when you hear the term son of man, he's not, it's not just saying I'm human. Yeah, that's true. But rather, he's referring to something back in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was Jesus' Bible. So if you go back to the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7, you'll see that Daniel the prophet 
gives this prophecy of someone like unto a son of man who is coming. He is a divine, heavenly figure uh, who will come. He's this messianic figure, if you will, who will come with all of his heavenly host to put everything right. Okay, that's what Daniel says about the son of man in chapter 7. Now here, Jesus is referring to himself as the son of man that Daniel is referring to in his prophecy in Daniel 7. So when Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man, that's what he's referring to. Now it's clear from verse 38 that Jesus is saying that someday I am going to return to earth. Just like Daniel said in chapter 7, I am going to come with the glory of my Father and absolute radiance and splendor. I am going to return with the holy angels. And I can almost see the disciples sitting on the edge of their seats going, yeah, yeah, that's right. I know that. Daniel 7, the Son of Man. Yeah, yeah, man, you're going to come and kick some... You know what I'm saying? The Messiah. Yeah, that's right. Come on. Come on with the radiance of your father, all the angels. Yes. Right? So the Son of Man, this is this term that Jesus is using for himself. I can just almost see him getting him, getting him worked up. He's this divine messianic figure. Yes, you're the Messiah, Jesus. And then says, but guess what? The Son of Man must suffer. Bird. You know, it's like the sound of the record going, you know, the, the needle going off the record. Wait a minute. What, what did you say? You said you're going to be the son of man like Daniel. Yeah, he's going to come and he's going to make everything right. He's going to conquer everybody. He's going to ascend to the throne. And woo, he's the son of man. But the son of man, Jesus says, must suffer. And at this point, Jesus brings together these two ideas that have never been brought together before in history, uh, up to Jesus' time. Nobody in history had ever taken this idea of suffering and connected it with this promised Messiah. Jesus was the first person to do that. Now think of, you know, yes, you can go to the Old Testament. Some of you might be thinking, well, no, Stephen, that's not true. Go to Isaiah, Isaiah 53, where it talks about the suffering servant. That's true. But nobody, not even Isaiah, had put together this thought of the Messiah who must suffer. Okay? Because the idea that the Messiah must suffer, that was, that was ludicrous. It was ridiculous to the disciples. That was ridiculous to the Jews who were longing, who had for generations had passed on this hope and this truth of uh, this coming future king and Messiah who would deliver them and give them back their nation and give them back their hope and their country and all that stuff. Nobody had connected this Messiah must suffer because the Messiah is supposed to be the one who comes to make things right in the world. He's the one to come and defeat evil and come and defeat injustice and how can the Messiah, the, the king who will end all kings, how can he do that when he comes and, and gets killed? That makes no sense, Jesus. But, you know, put, put yourself in the disciples' shoes. You know, wouldn't that seem ridiculous to you, right? And that's why Mark gives us Peter's familiar reaction in verse 32. And I love how Mark sets this up. Notice Mark says, and Peter took him aside. You know, what do you do when you disagree with somebody? You know, I see you smile, some of y'all smiling. You're like, Hey, can I talk to you for a minute in private? <laughs> Y'all could see Peter doing that. Hey, Jesus, come here to my office for a minute, you know. Come here, I just want to talk to you for a minute. And I could see Peter putting his arm around Jesus. Now listen, Jesus, I, I get that you're the Messiah. And I'm really excited about that. But you must have been in the sun too long today. <laughs> Let's go get some water and take a rest. The silly talk about dying on a cross. That's ridiculous. You can't do that. That's why Peter was so freaked out since he was a child. He has been hearing he has been told that this Messiah would come, a king who would come to Jerusalem. He would go to Jerusalem. He would defeat all evil and injustice. And this Messiah would ascend 
to the throne. And here Jesus is saying, yes, I am the Messiah and I am king and I'm going to Jerusalem to defeat all evil and injustice, but I am going to do that by not ascending to a throne. I'm not going to a throne. I am going to a cross, Jesus says. And do you know what the cross meant? The cross, I think, for us is sterilized because, you know, execution that we still, a capital punishment is practiced in the United States, but it's, I mean, the cross is the antithesis of what happens today. I mean, it's the antithesis. It was the utterly most inhumane, torturous, shameful kind of death. The cross was the epitome of helplessness and shame. And every other kind of execution, even back then, gave the person some sense of dignity, but the cross strips the person who is being executed, strips their dignity. You were stripped naked, completely naked. Your hands and feet were nailed to this cross out into the open where it would take hours. Sometimes research and records say that it took days for the person to be executed. Days. Everyone would gawk at you. you know, public ex- they were public executions. You know, they didn't have TV. They would watch the reality show happening on the cross. It's what people did. The cross was the exact opposite of the throne. Do you begin to see the weight of this? Why this hit the disciples? Why this hit Peter so hard? You can't die, Jesus. You can't suffer. But Jesus says, that, friends, is where I am going. I'm going to Jerusalem not to rule on the throne. I'm going to Jerusalem, he says, to die. I'm not going to Jerusalem to take power, but I'm going to Jerusalem to give it. I'm not going to Jerusalem to rule, he says, but I am to do what? I'm going to serve. And that's how I'm going to defeat evil. And that's how I'm going to make right everything that's wrong. And see, that's astounding. The disciples and Peter, they didn't know what to do with this. And Jesus, being a good father and a good king, drills down even deeper. He doesn't just stop there. Because what does he say? I'm the son of man. And then he says, the son of man... Does Jesus say the Son of Man will suffer? What does the text say? No. The Son of Man what? Must suffer. The Son of Man must suffer. This word must, you know, this is a word that we would gloss over. We don't use the word must. I guess we use it as, a, you know, uh, something to, to get our point across. But we don't normally attach much significance to the word must. But it's one of the most important words in the Bible, folks, right here. He says, look, It's not that I will suffer and die. It's that I absolutely must suffer and die. It's absolutely necessary that I die, that the world cannot be changed and renewed. You cannot be changed. You cannot be renewed unless I die. So why was it absolutely necessary for Jesus to die? And that's that question. Why was it necessary for Jesus to die is a daunting and intimidating question. But it is the most important question that you would ever answer. Not just Jesus would say, who do you say that I am? But you must answer the question, why must Jesus die? Why did he have to die? And so we're going to look just briefly this morning at two biblical Christian theological answers to why did Jesus, why did Christ have to die? Well, it was necessary for Christ to die for us in two ways. First, for us personally. That Christ had to die for you personally. And then the second thing is that Christ had to die for you Legally. Now, what do I mean when I say that Christ had to die for you personally? Well, Tim Keller in his book, King's Cross, quotes this guy named William Vanstone. And 
Van Stern wrote this book called The Phenomenology. It's hard to say. The Phenomenology of Love. I know it's a big term. But basically, what he means by this is this. He says, William Van Stern says, that all human beings, even people who grew up, uh, children who were deprived of love, you know, whether you grew up with a very supportive system of parents and a family who showed you lots of love, or maybe you grew up without any parents or abusive parents and you had horrible examples of love, he says, regardless of your background, he says, no matter your experience, humans know the difference between true love, right, and false love, between fake love and authentic love. And he goes on to say, here's the difference. He says, in fake love and false love, your goal in fake love or false love is to use the other person to fulfill your happiness, okay? That's what he says. So then the reason in false love or fake love, the reason you show affection or the reason you show love to somebody is because it's conditional. As long as that other person that you're uh, showing love to is reciprocating and affirming you and meeting your needs, then you're going to keep kind of showing them love and putting affection on them. And then going along with that, he says, that love, that false love, that fake love is a non-vulnerable love, he says. In other words, he says, you hold back in false love or in fake love, you hold back your real self. Because you don't want to give them your real self, real self, you hold back your real self so that you need to, if you need to cut your losses because they're not affirming you, then you can do that. And there's not too much loss there. You see that? So he says, in order for you to fulfill your happiness, uh, you use the other person, you're not vulnerable with them, and it's really a dysfunctional kind of love, he says. But then he says, the opposite of this is true love. True love, the motive behind true love is, is its aim is to spend yourself for the other person, to give yourself and your love and spend yourself for the good and the joy solely of the other person. So then your greatest joy is the joy of the other person. And that is true love, he says. See how this works. He says, your affection and your love, true love for the other person, you give it regardless of that other person is meeting your needs, right? That's unconditional love, he says. And it's radically vulnerable. You give your true self, your whole self to that person. You give everything to them and you want nothing back. And Van Stone goes on to say that surprisingly, if you boil the human race down, nobody can fully love like that unconditionally. Isn't that true? We would probably all agree with that. Nobody can fully give true love. But then he makes this point. He says, but yet, ultimately, even though we can't fully give it to each other, yet we desperately want that kind of love. Isn't that interesting? Even though we fully want to, we can't give unconditional love, we try and we fail, <laughs> even the best of us. Yet, we desperately want that kind of love. We want to be loved unconditionally, don't we? We want it, but we can't necessarily give it. Now, why would he say that? He's not saying you can't get that kind of love at all. He's not saying that nobody is fully capable of giving true love. He says, but we need love. We need love just like we need air. We need love just like we need water. We can't live without it. And so he goes on to say that we're almost like relationship mercenaries. He says that we, we're attracted, we, we look for people whose love we would like to get. We really desperately want to be loved, so we're relationship mercenaries, and we kind of begin to look for folks who can meet our needs and meet the kind of love that we'd like to have. And if we feel, you know, if I can invest my love in them, and I think they're good folks, then, then I'll get a good return on my investment in them. But here's the deal. When you do that, to some degree, your love is conditional and non-vulnerable. You're not loving that person for him or herself you're not loving, you're loving them for what you're getting 
from them. So Van Stone, to some degree, I think is right. Of course we do love folks, and of course we don't do it perfectly, but in reality, no one can do that perfectly, but we still want that kind of love that we're starved for. We look for it, yet we can't give it to others. So we need someone to get the ball rolling here. We need someone to love us. Someone to love us who doesn't need us at all. Someone who would love us vulnerably, but yet doesn't need us a bit. Well, who is capable of a love like that? You know, if we got a love like that, then I think we would be far more assured of our value. If we were really truly loved like that, I think we would be filled up and much more confident. If somebody loved us vulnerably like that and didn't need us a bit, I think that would make all the difference. If we felt that kind of love and even we received that kind of love, then I think it would begin to help us give that kind of love. Here's this hymn, Amazing Love. Do you remember the words? Who is capable of this? It's Jesus. The hymn says, He left His Father's throne above so free, so infinite His grace, emptied Himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. He left His Father's throne above. Why would He leave Jesus, who wants to give us that kind of love, who doesn't need us a bit, but wants to love us, why would he do that? If you remember in the beginning of the series, we talked about the dance of the Trinity. And we worship and we know and we are learning and loving a God who is a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And from all eternity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit has been in communion and intimacy and relationship, loving one another perfectly, loving each other to the point that they are more, far more concerned about the other's good than their own. So God has all of this love and this blessing wrapped up in the fulfillment of the Trinity. All the love that He could possibly want in the Trinity, and yet He created us. Why is the question. Why did He create us? Did He need us? Did this triune God need to create earth because He was bored? No. Did He... Uh, did He feel like his love was somehow lacking and so he needed another creature to create to love so that his love would not be lacking. No, he had perfect love and intimacy and communion within the Trinity. Why did he create us? Because he didn't need us. He, loved, he created us because he loves us. Paul said that when Pete was reading that this morning in Galatians 2 and Paul says, because you love me. You, know, you need to hear the words, I love you. Many of you guys don't hear that enough. I love you. Now, I can say that. I do as your pastor. I do love you. I really do. I've only been here seven months, but I love you. I've grown to love you guys. You're a lovable bunch of folks. And y'all love me pretty well, too. But you need to hear from the Father who says, I love you. That's why I've created you. I didn't create you because out of duty. I created you because I love you. I love you. Do you hear that? I'm not just saying that. Folks, you need to hear this from the, the Lord who loves you. That's why He created you. It's because He loves you. He wants your joy more than His own joy. That's an astounding thing. The God of the universe, this triune God, created you because He loves you, and He wants you to have far more joy than He wants of His own. That, my friends, is perfect love. That's unconditional love. That's vulnerable love that he made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, Paul says. 
And this is why Jesus is saying to Peter, I must die, Peter. I must suffer, otherwise you will never be capable of even receiving my love, much less loving others like I've loved you. And then what happens? Jesus says, not only is this for you personally, Peter, but this is also for you legally. I want to talk about forgiveness for a minute, and we'll, we'll bend this in, and I think you'll see this. Now, how does forgiveness work, right? Say somebody, you, you just buy a $400 flat screen TV in your bedroom. You're like, yes, I got my TV in my bedroom now. Woohoo! cable and TV. All right, we got rid of cable. I'm sad. Okay, sorry. I don't know why I just told you that. Anyway, I'm so weird. Okay, so you buy this TV, and it's in your room, and you spend $400, and then somebody comes in and bashes your TV in. You know, they, they're like, elbows in and bust the screen out. You're like, my TV. And there's two ways that you can respond to that, right? And, and forgiveness, right? Either you can make the person who broke your TV give you $400. Say, that's $400, please, to fix my TV. Or you can say, listen, I forgive you. It's okay. I like that TV a lot, but I like you more, right? And that's two ways that you can respond. So what happens in that scenario, right? You absorb the cost of what was done to your TV or the TV breaker absorbs the cost, right? You absorb the cost if you forgive them or you pay, you know, the TV breaker pays and, and, and pays for the new TV. Now that doesn't work just in hypothetical situations. Think about it in real life situations. Say someone has really wounded you relationally. Someone's really wronged you maybe by something that they said or something that they did. There is a sense of debt there with you. If you've been wronged, you carry a sense of debt. That person owes you something that they have taken away from you, whether it's your pride, you know, reputation or, I don't know, stuff. I mean, that person owes you something, and there is a debt that you carry because they've hurt you, and you can't just shrug that off, right? So there's two things that you can do. You can make that person pay, right? And maybe there's, you know, financially there's nothing that they could do to make things right, but you can make them pay by wanting them to suffer, right? You could actively try and harm them, right? Seek vengeance and try to harm them in some way. You can wish... Maybe you can't do that, so inside you can wish that something might, bad might happen to them. You might wish for them to suffer. You, you know, something bad happens to them, and you're like, yeah, they got what they deserved. Huh. You know, and you feel good about it on the inside, right? Technically, you, have, you feel like you're making them work off by wanting them to suffer. You're making them pay a bit, right? But when you do that, guess what? You're becoming just like the perpetrator. Or you can forgive them. And that's the painful route to forgive them. And here's the deal. When you refuse vengeful thoughts, all of us have been injured, all of us have been hurt, and all of us are human and sinful, and vengeance, vengeful thoughts come in, don't they? They happen to us. But what happens when you, by God's grace, refuse those vengeful thoughts? It hurts. There's a cost to that, isn't it? It hurts you because all of a sudden, you can't make that person carry the debt. Who has to carry the debt? You have to carry the debt. When you forgive, it's agony because when you forgive, you are absorbing the cost. Instead of them making them suffer and absorb the cost, forgiveness says, no, I absorb the cost here. And it always entails suffering. And the debt doesn't disappear into thin air. Somebody either pays the debt. Either they pay it or you pay it. But if you only absorb the debt and forgive, even though it hurts, then that's true that you can begin to move towards justice and reconciliation. But if you, somebody hurts you and you begin to absorb that, there's a debt that has to be carried and you're the one who carries it and it's painful. Now, get this. If we at a human level realize that forgiving somebody entails 
assuming the debt, and it entails suffering for the one who is the forgiver. Right? If we try to rectify the right, instead of seeking vengeance, and we don't try to rectify the rights and the wrongs, but we pay by absorbing the cost and forgiving them, why does it surprise us? Folks, get this. Lean in and hear this. Why does it surprise us when God says that the only way that I can forgive the sins of the human race is by suffering? Why does it surprise us when Jesus says the only way that I can forgive you is by absorbing the cost and suffering? Jesus says, I must suffer. Either you are going to pay the penalty for sin or I am going to pay the penalty for sin. You see, forgiveness always entails suffering. And that's the only way that God cannot judge us, even though we all deserve to be judged. The only way God will not judge us is because Jesus took your judgment. He absorbed the judgment you deserved. He absorbed your rebellion. He absorbed your pride and your lust and your sin, all of it on himself. And we see this, Jesus doing this on the cross eternally for us so that in some small way we can love and forgive like Christ did. Now we've seen reasons why Jesus had to die and suffer for us, that we, we could be loved so that we could learn to love. We could receive pardon and learn to forgive, and the power of death and evil cannot be held against us. And so we see, we get back to Peter and Jesus, that Peter realizes that Jesus isn't this king that he was expecting. I am, Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not going to transform your life by going to the throne, but I'm transforming your life by going to the cross. And I'm not sure that we fully answered the question that why did Peter react so strongly when Jesus says that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die? You see, right here we see this clash of agendas. <laughs> if you're married, you ever have a clash of agenda if you're married? Oh, we do. Presley Ann and I do. You know, what do you want to do? Well, I want to do this. Oh, well, I kind of want to do this. You know, oh, here's the great one. Where do you want to eat? Ah, <laughs> uh-huh, I got you on that one. Where do you want to eat? Oh, man. Have, have, yeah, I, we spent 30 minutes trying to figure out where to eat. Chick-fil-A or Arby's? 30 minutes later. I don't know. I guess Chick-fil-A. I don't know. I want to go to Arby's. I mean, it's the clash of agendas. It happens all the time. Here, Peter and Jesus have this monumental clash of agendas because Peter not only saw Jesus as the Messiah for the first time, he got it. And now it dawns on him that his agenda and Jesus' agenda were not one and the same. You see, Peter's agenda... For three years, he's been traveling with Jesus. He's seeing miracles and he's seeing victories and he's seeing this masses of masses of people growing. And he's thinking, yes, we are going to go from strength to strength and victory to victory like the band of brothers, Jesus. Yes. And Jesus says, no, I must suffer and die. And if you follow me, Peter, you must suffer and die too. And Peter says, Jesus, we have suffered. Listen, we've left everything. I've left my family in a thriving fishing business. I've been with you for three years, and now you're telling me I've got to die with you? I've suffered enough. You see, Peter's agenda didn't include death. His agenda didn't include that, kind, that level of suffering, and that's why he sharply rebukes Jesus. And here is a huge lesson for us, friends. You see, if your agenda... And the Christian life is the end all of, listen, Jesus, yeah, I'm comfortable coming to church and I'm comfortable being an American Christian, but I, I can't give you all of my life. There are certain things that I've got to hold on to. Let's see, then really, your agenda is the end all. Then to Jesus, then Jesus is just the means, you see. And you're just using Him. But if Jesus is the King, as He says He is, 
You cannot make him the king a means to your end. You see, you don't go to a king, do you, and negotiate. We don't have a king, but say you were to go to the president. You don't go and barge into the president's office and negotiate as much as you might like to. You don't do that. You don't go to a king and negotiate. What do you do? You fall at his feet, especially this kind of king. You fall at his feet and say, listen, I am your servant. Here is my weapons. Here is my life. You command me, king. And you see, don't forget the kind of king that Jesus is, right? He, you know, if he was just a king who didn't come, he was just a king who ascended to the throne, then sure, you, you would come before him and you would go before this king and you wouldn't fall before his feet. You might, but you'd do it out of duty. But here we have this king who's a king who has suffered, who said, I must suffer and I must die, and he died on for the cross for you. Then you go to that king and you fall before his feet and worship and delight, not out of duty, but out of love because he's died for you. Because he's the king who went to the cross for you. This means when you come to Jesus, you aren't negotiating your agenda on your own terms, but you are broken by His love as He embraces you. And you say, Lord, whatever you ask, Lord, whatever you send my way in, in, in life, Lord, I will, I will accept. You know, what do we pray? Many of you maybe don't know this. Some of you might know this prayer, but many of you probably do. Some of you maybe have never heard the Lord's Prayer, but it's, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy what? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, right? When we pray that, we're saying, listen, God, your kingdom begins with weakness. Jesus, you modeled that. Your king, kingdom didn't go from strength to strength, but Jesus, you went to Jerusalem to die. Your kingdom began with weakness and relinquishment. Jesus, you gave up your rights. You gave up the glory that you could have held on to, Paul says in Philippians, but you made himself, he made yourself nothing. He relinquished his rights. He, he started the kingdom in weakness. And so he calls us to give up our rights, to give up our agendas. And life begins, folks, hear this. Life begins when you admit you're weak. The world is topsy-turvy. The world says, no, do not admit vulnerability or weakness. Absolutely not. We're not in a Fortune 500 world, folks. This is his kingdom. This is his world. And life begins when you admit that you are weak. And you're vulnerable with the Lord for the first time and said, Lord, I am a mess. And I cannot fix myself. And Lord Jesus, I need your help. I need you more than your help. I need you to command me, Jesus. I'm sick of commanding my own life. Jesus, would you command me? You see, we desperately need someone to fulfill all the requirements of the kingdom. We don't fill a single one. Jesus fulfilled all of those requirements. And he paid for my sins. And he's paid for your sins by going to the cross for you. C.S. Lewis said this, in his book, Mere Christianity, it's such a good book, and he said this about asking the King Jesus to command you. He says, he says, give up yourself. He says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life, he says, and you will save it. Submit to death. Submit to the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, he says, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing, Lewis says. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours anyway, he says. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run that only hatred and loneliness and despair and rage and ruin and decay are in your life if you hold on to these things. But if you look for Christ, you will find him. And if you look for him and you find him, he throws everything else in, he says. 
You see, he created you because he didn't need you. He wasn't bored. He created you because he loved you. He loves you. And Jesus went through every fiber of his being to rescue you from death and hell. And that's why we celebrate communion. You see, when you go to a friend's house to eat, right? When you go to a friend's house to eat, somebody invites you over to the house. Normally, you don't get to pick the menu, do you? You just go, right? And, and you don't really bring anything. You just show up, right? And you don't pick the menu. They pick the menu. And you sit down. And when, when you're a guest, right, you sit down and you enjoy the food. You enjoy the feast that your host has prepared. Your host, what have they done? They have set the table. They have sacrificed time. They have sacrificed uh, many things to set this table. They've sacrificed many things just to have a house for you to eat in. <laughs> they've, they've set the table. They've prepared the meal. They've paid for the food financially. They've gone out and bought the ingredients for the meal, right? It's cost them. It hasn't cost you. It's cost them. See, that's what hospitality really is. Hospitality is a wonderful picture of grace. Because in hospitality, is somebody invites you into their home, and it, it costs them to invite you. And you just come in as a participant. You don't bring anything. You just show up and eat. See, that's what the table is here. The Lord's table is, is you bring nothing. The Lord Jesus is the host of this table. And the ingredients are His body and His blood. And it infinitely costs Jesus, folks. I hope you know that. It infinitely costs Jesus for you to come to this table. And the invitation is there for you. Come. And guess what? You don't have to bring anything to this sinner's dinner. This is what this is. This is a sinner's dinner. And you bring nothing to this table except yourself. Nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to what? Thy cross, I cling. That's what you're doing. You're coming and you're clinging to the cross of Jesus when you celebrate communion. See, it costs Jesus his life. It costs God his son. And the ingredients are spread out for you on this table this morning. It's his blood and his body. And we celebrate communion together. And we embrace what Christ has done for us as we do this. So listen, I want to ask the elders to go ahead and come forward, if you will. And I want us to give us the institution of the Lord's Supper this morning because, you see, this table is God's table. This isn't Wellspring Presbyterian Church's table. This is not our denomination, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church's table. This is the Lord's table. And just like any good host, He is wanting to show you hospitality and asking you to come to this table. He doesn't want you to bring anything. He's asking you to come to this table empty so that he might fill you up. And so you're invited to partake of this table with us if you have trusted in Christ alone for your salvation. Let me ask you this. If you're not sure where you stand with the Lord Jesus, maybe you're not in a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus, maybe you're not sure, then let me ask you to let these elements pass you by. Don't be embarrassed. In fact, Paul says that those who are not sure where they stand with the Lord Jesus, those who are not in Christ, when they take of these elements, they condemn themselves further. So let me, I say that because I love you. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, then, then let these elements pass you by. It's okay. Maybe there is a, some vengeance in your heart towards someone. Maybe there's some folks in your life that you have not pursued that you're struggling with. Then let me ask you maybe to refrain from these elements as well. Not as discipline. Not to spank you. But just to take your heart before the Lord so that you don't drink and eat judgment upon yourself. If you, don't have, if you have a child who has not yet become a member, a communicant member, has not met with the elders and been received into official uh, 
membership of Wellspring, let me also encourage you to allow the elements to pass them by. And what a great opportunity today to explain to them the gospel of the Lord Jesus and how important this table really is. For remember that the Lord Jesus, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace with God was laid upon Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. So the Lord Jesus, on the night that He was betrayed, as He sat around this table and asked His disciples to come and eat with Him, that He was the host, this hospitality of grace that He was extending he took this bread and said, this is my body broken on the cross for you. Broken for you and your sins. Eat this in remembrance of me. Father, we praise you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to take our sin upon yourself. It is a mystery, Lord. But Lord, we're here, we're standing here, we're alive, this isn't a dream. <laughs> and you can be five years old and already understand your sinfulness, but gosh, how much more when we're 50 or 40 or 30 or 70. The older we grow, the more sinful we realize we really are. And our only hope is, Lord Jesus, you redeeming us and rescuing us. And thank you that, Lord, this body was broken for us and we ask that, Lord, you would set aside this bread from a secular to a sacred use that we might always remember your precious sacrifice of love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.